welcome to our Simon Don reading group. Uh, we're continuing with Individuation, Volume 2, uh, History of the Notion of the Individual. Uh, we've been doing it for a couple months now uh, and have probably another few months still because this is like a, a short book almost within the book. Uh, so we're, we're on the um, early Christian era. Um, oh, I should get the PDF open. That would help. Um, yeah, so we're on the, the early Christian era. Um, the, uh, we looked at some of the um, early Christian uh, heresies. So uh, they generally have to do with either the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the nature of Christ. Uh, and, and so the Orthodox um, doctrines of both the Trinity and the nature of Christ um, involved this uh, at least apparently contradictory uh, conception where, um, so like in the nature of the Trinity, there's this um, idea of the three in one. So God is three persons in one substance. Uh, and then in the, the concept of Christ, uh, uh, Christ is both fully human and fully divine. Uh, and so these uh, at least apparently contradictory concepts um, led to a lot of different sort of Splits within early Christianity over those uh, uh, different sides of the contradiction, where where different schools would sort of pick one side and and hold on to that. So they would say that uh, either um, uh, Christ was uh, uh, just a human being who had a sort of divine blessing or divine mission or or something like that, um, or on the other hand, they would say that um, Christ was fully divine uh, and only sort of took on a human appearance. And, and was never fully human. Uh, so they, they sort of pick one side of the contradiction and hold onto that side and uh, deny the other side. Um, so those are some of the, uh, some of the um, heresies that appeared in early Christianity that we looked at last time. Um, and then uh, we were just talking about this before we started recording, um, but we, we also saw these, these two important concepts that Simon Don um, uh, develops or, or points to in Christianity um, that he, he argues that these concepts sort of uh, reappear throughout the history of Christianity. Uh, and and there, there's a sort of tension between two ideas um, that he calls uh, procession and conversion. Um, so let me just find the page reference again. Um, but um, there, there are sort of, um, so there are these two opposed uh, ideas about the relationship between the uh, Christian believer and uh, and the and God and the Christian community. Um, so there's this idea of uh, so in the processive um, conception of Christianity, the individual believer has uh, an individual relationship with God, uh, and so it, it it has to do with um, uh, faith and um, this sort of uh, individual relationship, uh, whereas in the, um, uh, oh, sorry, I'm, I think I'm mixing those two up. Um, right, sorry, in the processive, um, in the processive conception, it's it's through the community that the believer has a relationship to God. So the the church is an institution that um, bears the tradition of the apostles uh, and um, sort of continues through history. And uh, it, it's a sort of continuous chain of connection from the apostles to the individual.
individual believer. Uh, and so the, the believer uh, has to be incorporated into the Christian community through the rite of baptism and uh, um, has, to be, has to be part of that community in order to have a relationship to God. Uh, and then the other conception or the other sort of um, uh, strain within Christianity is the uh, conversion strain, which is the individual one. Uh, sorry, I mixed those two up earlier, but the conversion uh, side, so it, it, it has to do with the individual um, converting to Christianity or converting to, um, to faith in God and um, having this individual relationship with God. Uh, and um, it sort of um, goes around the community or it, it's, not, um, it's not mediated by the community. Uh, and so these two conceptions coexist within Christianity and like different um, schools or traditions within Christianity sort of lean towards one side or the other. Um, so obviously the, the Protestant Reformation is um, in general um, leaning more towards the individual side, uh, the conversion side, uh, whereas the, the Catholic Church um, leans more towards the, uh, the procession side. Um, but each of these strains coexists within every uh, Christian denomination. Uh, it seems like um, he associates different kind of modes of participation with procession and uh, conversion. Um, and on, in this section on St. Anselm, he says that procession uh, entails this kind of descending continuity in the conception of, I guess, the cosmos and the relation of the individual to the cosmos uh, that I think involves, like, at least in this. I can't remember which example he's giving here, but in this example he's giving in the St. Anselm section, he says that it, the continuity, there's a, a degradation that happens from the good or God or whatever the highest term is all the way down to matter. Um, and it, it seems like I was trying to understand how that the continuity means that you have to have the community for the baptism to um, sort of save the isolated individual and why an individual would be isolated if there was a continuity. But I think it might be the irreversibility of the, the descent, you know, the descent or the, uh, I think he also referred to the movements from the one and Plotinus as a procession. Um, so there's this kind of irreversible movement away from the good towards matter. And then in order to, to save the individual, you have to have the community to sort of to reverse that. Um, and then the my understanding of the mode of participation in in uh, conversion is that it's it seems to be by way of like structural structural analogy between like the human and the cosmos or the human and the divine or what is knowable and the divine or something like that. And so that's why it's immediate uh, and doesn't need the community. Um, but yeah, I'm still trying to trying to work that out. <clears throat> Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah, the, you're right to point back to the neo uh, Neoplatonism section because this notion of a procession is one of the key concepts of, of Neoplatonism. So, um, in in Plotinus and other Neoplatonists, there's this um, concept of procession, uh, which uh, is is sort of the counterpart of uh, Plato's idea of ideas of, of participating in ideas. So there's um, instead of having entities sort of point upwards towards the ideas there's instead this downward pointing from the ideas to entities and um the ideas themselves proceed from the the 
the good, which is um, above the realm of essences or of ideas. Uh, and so there's, a, there's the good or the one that um, sort of overflows into these uh, ideas um, at the level of the, the intellect. Uh, and then uh, those ideas overflow into uh, the entities that we, you know, see and, and feel and so on in, in the physical world, um, all the way down to matter. Uh, so there's this, uh, that's sort of the neo Neoplatonist um, conception is this, this hierarchy of being from the good all the way down to matter. Um, and the Christian conception um, takes over a lot of that uh, idea from the Neoplatonists, uh, but one sort of key difference is the idea of creation out of nothing, um, uh, ex nihilo, cre uh, creation ex nihilo. Um, and this is one of the key doctrines of, um, I think Augustine um, argues against uh, some of the uh, other schools or, or other religious traditions of the time. Um, that so instead of having something like we see in Plato's Timaeus, we have the demiurge uh, creates the world, but uh, does so by taking matter that's already uh, there already exists and, and imposing a certain structure on it um, and sort of putting things together uh, into the world. Uh, uh, so this this is a sort of um, uh, a typical kind of pagan conception of uh, the creation of the world. Uh, out of something, some pre-existing matter or pre-existing uh, material of some kind and putting it together into a world. Uh, and then in the Christian doctrine, uh, uh, God creates the world not by putting things together, but um, out of nothing. And so there's this um, uh, this um, dependence, ontological dependence of the world on God in a way that is not the case for um, the, the Platonic doctrine uh, found in the Timaeus. Um, and um, so what this has to do with procession is that um, it, because uh, in the Platonic, uh, sorry, in the Neoplatonist doctrine, uh, everything proceeds out of the one, uh, there is a sort of um, um, uh, continuity between the one uh, and everything else. There's no sort of um, gap between the one and the entities that proceed out of the one. Uh, whereas in the Christian doctrine, God and created entities are um, ontologically distinct. They are, they are completely separate um, kinds of beings. Uh, and and um, so when we, when we think about this procession, uh, it's, only, it's only because uh, the church um, sort of bears the tradition. It, it has this continuous chain of connection back to the apostles who had this immediate relationship to Christ. It's only because of this uh, chain that we can sort of bridge the gap, the ontological gap between uh, the finite creatures that we are and uh, God as as uh, the creator of of everything. Um, and so it's, it's the church as an institution that sort of fills that gap or or um, has bears that chain of tradition that that allows for that relationship. Um, and then uh, in conversion, um, in the the conversion tradition. There's um, uh, this idea that um, by, by by this act of conversion or this act of um, uh, or this act of faith, um, we find God not only uh, as an ex external entity, as something sort of outside us that uh, you know created the world and so on, 
uh, but we find God within ourselves. Um, we have like a, a sort of internal uh, relationship to God and that allows for this, uh, uh, this, this is sort of what um, allows the act of conversion to happen. Um, so uh, both, both uh, traditions are um, specifically Christian. So they, they are uh, opposed to the pagan conception of uh, the creation of the world, but they, they sort of emphasize different sides of what this uh, ontological dependence of the creature on God means. Okay, um, so I think we can get started with today's reading. Uh, I think we were at the Rosalinus section on page 528 of the PDF, if uh, that's where everyone else has as well. Okay, yeah, so let's, right. let's start there. Um, Angus, do you want to start reading? Uh, yes. One second. Rosalinus. <clears throat> this devil attitude toward individual reality, which I think is conversion and procession. Yeah, I think that's right. Here's in the debate over universals. For Rosalinus, who speaks against St. Anselm, the universe seems to be fragmented into individuals. The distinction between individual substances alone is real, while other distinctions are merely an, quote, exhalation of the voice, unquote. Under these conditions, the dialectic has nothing to do with things, only with words insofar as they signify things. Individuality is the principle of real distinction, and it is the only principle of real distinction. Here, nominalism is a consequence of the way individual realities are represented. According to the dialecticians who inspire Rosalinus, individual, uh, individuals are like absolutes. Across this tradition of dialecticians, passing through, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Bothius, uh, and Simplicius of Cilicia, what is sought and rediscovered is the logic of Aristotle. All the distinctions brought to bear by the dialectic between genus and species, substance and quality are merely verbal distinctions based on human discourse. The nominalists, the individual, is not only an, not only an absolute in its rapport to, the, to other realities, but also in its rapport to itself. Division of the body into corporeal parts seems to Rosalinus completely arbitrary and conventional. Every body, e.g. a house, is indivisible. To say that it is in reality composed of foundations, walls, and a roof is to consider one of its parts, the roof, for example, both as a part of a whole and as a distinct thing in, the, in an enumeration of three things. This amounts to saying that if a thing is sufficiently individualized to be a distinct part in a whole, then it possesses complete individuality. Consequently, the conception of divine individuality becomes difficult in Rosalinus's nominalism. In God there are as many substances as distinct persons. Father and the Son, the Begetter and the Begat, are two individually and therefore substantially distinct realities. Three persons are as separate as three angels would be, and if there is a unity between them, it is only a unity of will and of power. In this radicalism of the conception of the individual, the individual no longer acknowledges the division superposed onto its substantiality. It cannot be one and multiple at the same time. At the basis of this attitude, we find this principle that relation does not have the value of being. Relation that exists between the three divine persons has no value of being and cannot guarantee the substantial unity of these three persons in a single God. This affirmation was considered heretical by the Council of Soissons in 1092, and Rosalinus was forced to retract. In conformity with this principle, Rosalinus did not want to distinguish the attributes of God, goodness, power, etc., from his substance. Uh, no more than he wanted to distinguish the divine person incarnated in Jesus from his humanity. According to the thought that seeks participation in conversion, the individual is not a radical. Not only is the individual not isolated from other realities to the point 
that every distinction is the sign of a distinct substantial individuality. It also possesses real parts within it that exist according to a structure and are distinct from one another. In the Platonic vision, the individual was able to be considered as a microcosm. Relations still had the value of being in that case, and the relation between the microcosm and the macrocosm is partly founded on the fact that the individual possesses an internal structure analogous to that of the whole in which it participates. Analogy founds participation by establishing a continuity of rapport between the being that participates and the being in which it participates. Man as God's image participates in God through this very image. Here, the individual is not an isolated being, but is completely defined as a limited reality. In some sense, it may be said that the individual participates because it is a whole, because it possesses a structure. So it seems like, if I'm understanding what he's saying correctly here, it seems like conversion, at least seen in light of Rosalinus's philosophy, is this kind of platonic, uh, analogical relation between the microcosm and the macrocosm. Or is he saying that Rosalinus is a thinker of procession and this platonic vision is conversion in opposition to that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think he's um, opposing what he calls here the platonic vision. So this analogical relationship between God and the individual believer. Um, I think he's opposing this platonic vision to both conversion and procession. Um, as as two uh, alternate Christian um, traditions or or two different uh, conceptions of the relationship between God and and the the believer in Christianity, um, so I think he's so he he's um, uh, yes he's he's contrasting Rosalinus's so Rosalinus's conception is a uh, is um, uh, has this sort of primacy of the individual um it, it's uh it takes the individual to be an absolute uh, uh completely isolated entity um and so that, that applies to the human individual as well um so the the human individual is uh this unity um and um the the sort of well one of the difficulties of this conception is is how we can understand the relationship between uh, the individual believer and God uh, on this conception, if the individual is something sort of autonomous and absolute uh, and self-consistent and so on, then uh, it becomes hard to understand what that relation to God would consist in. Um, and so I think this, so in addition to the um, issues with the Trinity and so on that, that Timon Don discusses a little bit earlier, uh, I think the, the, this, um, sort of autonomy of the individual is part of what makes Rosalinus's conception heretical. Um, uh, and so the, this is in contrast to the conversion. So when he says here, um, where is that? Yeah, so on page 529 of the PDF, um, about three quarters of the way down the page, he says, according to the thought that seeks participation in conversion, the individual is not a radical unity. Um, so this... Uh, this is in contrast to Rosalinus's thought. So for Rosalinus, the individual is a radical unity. Uh, and uh, so the, the, the conception of conversion um, in which the individual has this um, immediate relation to God or, or individual relation to God, um, the individual has to be something that is not self-contained because um, 
the individual finds God within themselves. Uh, and, and so there's a sort of exteriority of the, the self to itself or, or um, uh, the self, the individual is not um, self-contained or, or self-consistent uh, because it um, contains this relationship to God within itself. Uh, so here he's contrasting um, not just he's not he's not just contrasting the conversion and procession perspectives, but he's contrasting both of those perspectives with Rosalinus's um, conception of the autonomous individual, and also with the Platonic conception of um, this analogical relationship between uh, the human and the divine. So we have four different um, uh, conceptions of that relationship that are all uh, being contrasted with each other here. A little bit of like transition like transitional note on like Simon Don's part would have been really helpful there because it's not at all clear why he's suddenly like, yeah, but for Plato, it was something else. Yes. Uh, I mean, we, we should probably keep in mind as we read this text that it was never um, sort of prepared for publication. So we, I, I don't know exactly what sort of um, state the manuscript was in um, when the editors uh, sort of, it up and included it in the text here but um so we we i mean uh we find some of these kinds of transitions even in the published text where he just sort of seems to um pass from one topic to the other without any sort of obvious transition but um we should probably keep in mind that this text was not prepared for publication by simon don uh so it you know potentially if he were to um uh if he had prepared it himself for publication, he might have sort of smoothed over some of these transition points. Uh, okay, so let's go on to, um, let's see, we have a couple, we have one short section, uh, yeah, two short sections, so maybe uh, if we can read the next two sections, um, if someone else would like to read, or if we have no volunteers, I can read. Okay, uh, Christian thought in the 12th century. However, Christian thought in the 12th century ne- reveals a need for unity in this doctrine. This is the time of the encyclopedias named specula, questions, or sentences, like those of Ivo of Chartres, Radolphus, Ardens, Anselm of Laon, William of Champeau, Robert Pullen, uh, Robert of Melun, Peter Lombard, and ultimately Abelard Sicket et Non, whose method is also found in Pierre Lombard's Pro et Contra. Nevertheless, despite the unity of method that appears in the scholastics, the divergence between attitudes relative to the nature of individuality remains. Faithful to a Platonic inspiration, the school of Chartres and John Scotus Ariogena situate between the particular being and the world, the continuity expressed in the eternal necessity of the movement of descent from and return toward God. Conversely, Lombard and Thomas Aquinas assert discontinuity and introduce a completely free and contingent initiative into each act of the drama, the school of Chartres. The thought of the school of Chartres is also found in ancient culture. Constantine the African translates certain medical books of the Jews and Arabs, the aphorisms of Hippocrates with Galen's commentary, and two works of Galen himself. The corpuscular physics of Democritus is known because of these books. Adelard of Bath journeys to Greece and various Arab nations. He translates mathematical works, in particular Euclid's Elements and the Arithmetic of Al-Khwarizmi, and he is also familiar with the Timaeus. For Adelard, alongside universals to which a reality proper cannot be granted, there are archetypes. These archetypes are neither genera nor species, which can only be conceived in their report to individuals. Archetypes exist and are conceived outside sensible things in the divine mind. The goal of dialectics is to contemplate these archetypes. In the treatise De Eodem et Diverso, on the same and the different, 
which is written to justify philosophy, the understanding is presented as knowing things and their causes. It is only due to the aftermath of forgetting and because the soul is in the prison of the body that this knowledge is partly lost. At that point, the soul calls upon opinion. The Aristotelian inductive method is only valid in accordance with this degradation. In fact, the individual soul, as Plato asserts in his theory of reminiscence, is pregnant with the knowledge of the archetypes. The knowledge we have of the archetypes is not a flatus vocus, an exhalation of the voice, but a real knowledge. There is a relation of analogy between the archetypes and the notion of those of these archetypes within us. The soul is sister of the ideas. The individual is therefore not isolated from the reality that he knows. Knowledge is a participation through conversion founded on the reality of the analogical relation. There is no discontinuity between the knowing subject and the object known. This relation, that is knowledge, is founded on being. It has the value of being. If knowledge plays a, a vast role in this theory in conformity with Platonic thought, this is because it is that through which the individual participates in divine reality, insofar as the good of Plato becomes the god of the Platonic Christians. Under these conditions, the individual cannot be a closed and limited reality. Science, savoir, is not only capable of fixing the knowledge, connaissance, defined by the past, it can also extend it. This is what Bernard of Chartres expresses by providing a remarkable image of continuity in the development of human knowledge. We are like dwarves on the shoulder of giants. For Bernard of Chartres, universals are identical to Platonic ideas. The notions of microcosm and macrocosm are presented in the work of Bernard Silvestris, entitled De Mundi Universitate Siwe Megacosmos et Microcosmos, which conforms with the theory of the Timaeus. Lastly, in Bernard Silvestris' cosmogony, uh, cosmogony, which to a certain extent is the first mystery, the continuity of the universe appears very clearly. The Trinity becomes hierarchical and forms the echelons of an order that goes uninterrupted all the way up to the universe as a whole. The Father is identical to the good, Tagaton. The Son is Nous. The Spirit is the world soul or Endarechia, continuity, that emanates from Nous. Lastly, the soul... The world soul informs yet another hypostasis inferior to it, natura. We find species, genus, and individuals enclosed in the noose, intelligible world. Quote, the whole series of destinies, the arrangement of the centuries, the tears of the poor, and the fortunes of kings. Unquote. In this vision, quote, everything that will engender matter, the elements, uh, etc., unquote, is found to participate in the reality of the father in advance without any arbitrary intervention in the order of time. It is thereby understood that the, that the human being can be engendered not by a creative act of the father, but by the simultaneous operation of nous and natura. Natura forms the body of man with the four elements. This same inspiration is, is also found in Alain de Lille, who renews the doctrine of microcosmic man formed by the same parts as nature. Nature herself is like a human being, like a young maiden wearing an ornate crown of stones, which symbolizes the planets, and a robe embroidered with the complete variety of beings. This doctrine of the real analogy between the individual and the universe was already founded in was already found in Nemesius' treatise on the nature of man, which was translated by Alphanus I in N fifty eight. But Alain de Lille adds specific specifications to this vision. And these specifications are reminiscent of the Timaeus. Reason in man is like the movement of the sphere of the fixed stars, and sensibility with its varieties is like the movement of the oblique spheres of the planets. The soul is even like a divine city, wherein reason in the head corresponds to God and to the heavens. Ardor in the heart corresponds to the angels in, and the air. And the lower regions of the waste correspond to man and the earth. Such is the universal analogy between the microcosm and the macrocosm, between universal life and individual life, which the plaint of nature reveals as the foundation of the secret affinities due to which there is participation of the individual in the whole. 
The difference between God and nature is merely that of unity and multiplicity, which is itself just a developed unity. Nature says, quote, the operation of God is simple and mine is multiple. And there says Hyra says, this conception is inspired by Plato through Proclus's Platonic theology. Thus, reflection becomes a power of the individual being. Whereas previously the trivium and quadrivium were merely subservient to faith, the quadrivium is considered by William of Conch as the first part of philosophy, the second part of which is theology. The trivium or eloquence is more opposed to the scientific or philosophical study of nature than this very study is opposed to theology. Consequently, the formation of individual beings can be explained by an autonomous physics. Living individuals are beings composed of particles by the operation of natura operans. A vast naturalism establishes continuity between individual beings and the whole. The inspiration of Plato is combined with that of Lucretius and the Stoics to form the notion of a vigorem naturalum, inserted by God into, into things and through which certain beings live, others live and feel, and still others live, feel, and reason. Such are the, quote, forces of nature, which are a mediation between God and created individuals, thereby establishing continuity between the individual and God in whom it participates. Procession itself is conceived here in a form that legitimizes conversion beforehand. Such is the role of this notion of nature elaborated in the 12th century with so much firmness, thereby establishing a reversibility between the two forms of participation, which were in opposition until then. The mysticism of the Victorians does not disavow this tendency. For Bernard of Clairvaux, the human individual is not isolated from Christ. The Christian has the capacity to be saved by following Christ. The continuous path goes from consideration or research, which is meditation on oneself, on the world, and on God, to contemplation, which is a certain and indubitable conception of truth. And this path ultimately leads to ecstasy, wherein the soul is deified in the end. The tradition of universalism and knowledge is conserved by the Victorians. The knowledge of God is effectuated according to five increasingly perfect modes, in which the first two modes veritably manifest this continuity between the individual and the reality in which it participates. The contemplation of nature leads to the idea of the creator. The contemplation of the nature of the soul, which is everywhere in the body, just as God is everywhere in the universe, gives us an image of divine essence. Such is the doctrine of Hugo of St. Victor's on contemplation and its forms. Like St. Anselm, Richard of St. Victor wants to rediscover the necessary reasons for divine dogmas, and he titles his work The Grace of Contemplation. Sorry, that section was longer than I uh, than I thought. Uh, we probably should have broken that up into two. Um, but um, yeah, so we, we sort of pass... Um, abruptly from early Christianity. So we, we were talking about like, um, uh, we were in sort of the fourth and fifth century AD. Um, and then we had uh, one bit on Anselm, who I think is in the 10th century uh, and, um, uh, you know, 10th or 11th century. And then uh, Rosalinus, and then now we pass to the 12th century. So we're, we're sort of skipping through um, the medieval era relatively quickly. Um, and uh, again, this is stuff that I don't really know very well, uh, only secondhand. Um, so uh, I, I can't really comment a lot about this, but I know that um, there were, um, like in the 12th century, the, there's sometimes what's called the 12th century Renaissance. Um, there was a certain uh, rediscovery of um, ancient Greek and Roman texts um, that had been kind of lost to the Western world, uh, at least. For, for several centuries. Um, uh, and so uh, we see here that um, there, there are, uh, like at the beginning of this text, uh, of this passage, we have um, uh, reference to some of the ancient Greek works and that were uh, sort of rediscovered at this time. And um, 
the the kind of naturalism that appears so uh, or sort of a relative naturalism but um taking up some of the ideas of uh the stoics and the epicureans and sort of developing a, a kind of naturalism uh in uh, in a christian context um so it's it's still um a christian philosophy but it's uh one in which um there's a, a sort of there's a uh uh, valorization of nature and uh, a kind of autonomy of nature so we can understand nature in its own terms and and not uh, only as a creation of God. Uh, and we also find here, um, I think maybe a complication of what I was suggesting earlier about um, the four different ideas of the relation between the human and the, and the divine, um, because here uh, this sort of reactivation of platonic thought um, that happens in this 12th century Renaissance, um, it, it serves to kind of, um, as, as Simon Don puts it here, it, it, it institutes a reversibility between these two forms, um, the procession uh, and the conversion um, form of Christianity. So um, when you sort of intertwine these three different ideas of the relation between God and the human being, you end up with... Um, uh, a kind of so it this notion of an analogy between the the human individual as the microcosm and uh the the universe and or god as the the macrocosm uh it means that um there's um um a kind of continuity between between god and the natural world um so and and then the human as a, a part of that natural world um so it means that this uh, role, the role of the community um, in sort of bridging the ontological gap between God and the world is no longer um, is no longer the same. We don't have the same ontological gap. We have this continuity instead, uh, and and um, the individual relationship to God and the communal relationship to God are sort of uh, interchangeable, uh, or are, are sort of like alternatives um, perspectives that are both. Um, uh, equivalent in this under this conception, um, as opposed to being sort of two um, opposed perspectives as they are uh, or, or as they were previously. Um, so we have uh, this complicated sort of intertwining of the Platonic um, analogical perspective, and then the conversion and procession uh, perspectives. Um, so. They all sort of uh, are joined together in this 12th century um, renaissance. I thought that this, uh, when he says that procession itself is conceived here in a form that legitimizes conversion beforehand, um, I sort of linked this back to the, the point that he made about continuity and procession in that earlier section. And I thought that this here it was referring to the, uh, the, the different capacities like reason sensation oh yeah uh, the vigorum naturalum um through which certain beings live others live and feel and so others live feel and reason so that would be the kind of the procession or gradual degradation that happens from i guess the ability to reason to the ability to feel or merely live um and that 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 continuity is what allows for this direct because it gives it, it involves the faculty of reason, it allows for this kind of direct relationship to God or the cosmos. Uh, do you think that makes sense? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think um, 
I think the this role of the vigoria naturalem or, or the forces of nature um, is sort of um, instituting this continuity. Um, and so um, there's a, a, a continuity between uh, entities that um, have reason, so human beings and I, I guess angels as well. Um, um, the, there's a continuity from these entities to the entities that only have uh, life and sensation. So that would be other animals. Um, and then, uh, and then downward to animal to entities that only have life, uh, the plants, and and I guess down to um, entities that don't have any of these capacities, um, like minerals and so on. Um, so there's a, a continuity in this ontological seal, um, and as a result, um, it, it means that um, this ontological continuity in the scale of nature or in uh, the scale of being. Um, uh, means that there's no um, ontological gap for uh, for procession for the relationship to the community to have to bridge. Um, so, whereas in the previous conceptions um, we needed this um, tradition from the apostles down to the present in order to have a relationship to God through um, through procession. Uh, in this conception, um, procession uh, from God. Uh, and the sort of individual relationship to God are are sort of uh, equivalent to each other because there's no ontological gap anymore. And in this the idea of uh, Adelard's archetypes, I thought that was like it was. Uh, I don't know. It just it seems like he's rediscovering universals and just calling them something else and saying, yeah, universals themselves are are purely nominal. But then there are archetypes which basically do the same thing, but they're real. I didn't really understand what distinction he was actually drawing there. I'm sure it's, it's more subtle than that. Yeah. I, I also, um, uh, again, I don't know this stuff firsthand, so, um, um, I'm not sure exactly what the distinction is, um, between archetypes and universals. Um, I guess, so I, as far as I can tell from this text, um, the archetypes are, um, are not meant to be, um, a species, uh, so like, uh, there's no, no uh, archetypes are individuals, not species. So they 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 don't um, sort of contain um, multiple entities. So species understood as um, uh, a collection or a set of entities are purely nominal. Um, they only exist insofar as we um, assign a name to them. Um, whereas the archetypes are individual um, ideas in the mind of God. Uh, and and sort of uh, patterns from which individual entities are are created, um, and so I think it's this distinction between uh, a species as a collection of entities and then the uh, archetype as an individual entity. Uh, I think it's probably this that he has in mind, and and that's probably the t- what the distinction is here. But um, I'm not super confident in that interpretation. That's really interesting. If that's if there's this idea of literally individual ideas in the mind of God, that would seem to be. Uh, I mean, it seems to be very different than from Platonism and Aristotelianism, where the form is the the form is the species or the kind, or um, and then the individual is sort of accidental. Yeah, I think. Um, well, for Plato, it's always um, a little bit difficult to say what exactly his doctrine is because, of course, the dialogue form. Um, but um, for for Plato, I think the ideas um, 
have this sort of hybrid status or, or sort of ambiguous status. Um, so there's an idea of man or an idea of the horse or whatever, um, and individual horses uh, participate in this idea of the, of the horse. Um, but the idea of the horse is not itself um, identical to the collection of horses. Uh, so it's not something plural or um, collective. Uh, it's it's the the there's a singular form of the horse uh, and all horses participate in the horse um, uh, and and um, have their sort of individual particularities, their particular qualities, you know, be, being this tall and this color and so on. Um, but um, the ideas themselves are not uh, are not collections, um, but they 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 have this um, uh sort of inherent capacity to um, uh, to be instantiated in more than one individual. Um, so even though, so the horse, uh, the idea of the horse is not a collection, but at the same time, it's something that can uh, be instantiated in uh, multiple different individuals. Um, so it, it it's not plural, but it also has the capacity for plurality uh, in, in that sense. Uh, so there's a sort of um, ambiguous um, status of the the ideas in Plato, um, and I guess here what we see is a sort of split of those two sides of the idea, um, where on the one hand the 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 plurality is um, sort of split off and treated as merely nominal, and then the um, singularity uh, is is uh, treated as as a real um, entity. Uh, the the archetype um, which is distinct from the the merely nominal universal uh, I, that seems to be what's going on here. I see. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. But again, this is something that um, uh, you would have to go back to these texts themselves and see if that interpretation is correct uh, um, to you know have any confidence in that interpretation because I'm I'm getting all this secondhand through Simon Don who I think is also getting it secondhand through Breillet uh, or, or something else. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're sort of at third-hand interpretation um, doing this. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the section on Abelard. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a short section. Yeah, let's do the next two sections, uh, if someone else would like to read. Okay, yeah, I can read. <clears throat> Abelard. This force of individual thought is expressed to the highest extent in Peter Abelard's genius. He has been criticized for wanting to establish a dogma wherein all mystery is suppressed, which negates the need for tradition, and from which a morality would ensue that would rely on man's confidence in himself and nullify the need for grace with the sacrament. According to Bernard of Clairvaux, the need, oops, Abelard exhibited immense pride, which led to making human genius, humanum ingenium, usurp everything for itself, thereby leaving nothing to faith. And de facto, Abelard indeed offers the appearance of what could be called an extreme individualism with the Historia Calamitatum at the end of his life. The knowledge of God surpasses the dialectic and the whole content of the trivium. Quote, in himself, God violates the rules of the philosophers, unquote. Nevertheless, there remains the path of similitudes practiced by Plato and St. Augustine. Philosophical notions provide an image of divine reality. Correlatively, the morality that Scitote Ipsum, Know Thyself, proposes individualistic, monastic life, the sacraments, and the merits of faith are useless. Marriage between monks and nuns is not forbidden. No trace of respect for the community's authority remains. 
Sin is purely personal in there is no possibility for any reversibility of mistakes. No man can know the intentions of another since the mistake is in the intention alone. No, since the, since the mistake is in the intention alone, one cannot judge others. The very merits of Christ are not reversible for us. Salvation is purely personal. Penances cannot be remitted by priests, no more than sins can be forgiven by bishops. Avalard therefore goes to the point of refusing all participation through con- in order to safeguard the individual's force and free. The Abagenses. The end of the 12th century is marked by a number of aspirations to evangelical purity, either in the sense of historical continuity of effectuating the advent of pure spirituality, as in Joaquin of Fiore, who proclaims the coming at hand of the kingdom of the spirit, or by a direct aspiration of purity with the Abagenses, who want to deliver themselves from sins in order to become Cathars, pure ones. What is quite remarkable in this aspiration and conformity with with the Gnostics' doctrine is that in order to rediscover his veritable nature, which is that of the soul before it is enclosed in the body, the human individual must carry out within himself a division between what is of celestial origin and therefore angelic in nature and what is of terrestrial origin, i.e. the body, the vital principle, and the desires or tendencies that arise from the latter. The human being is vaster than the veritable. The veritable individual is rediscovered and isolated from what is not itself by way of a separation, a reduction. Purity is an isolation of the individual. The individual is simpler than the being. It is already a composite. Isolated from the community of the church and from everything that is the temporal world, abstaining from all participation in the church taken as the dispensator of sacraments. Human being is not yet a veritable individual. He remains impure because he is devil. He must yet purify himself. And for the Cathars, to purify oneself is to simplify oneself. The conception of individuality at the base of the doctrine of the Albigenses is an affirmation of substantial simplicity as constitutive of human na- of individual nature. The individual's participation in the divine therefore occurs by way of substantial identity. Pure spirituality in man rejoins spirituality in God without passing through any mediation. Uh, the thought of the Albigenses is a doctrine of pure conversion. But we should note in particular that this doctrine can only be applicable if veritable individuality is considered to be more limited than the than the apparent content of human individuality. Pure conversion in some sense requires a preliminary simplification of the individual in the Albigensian sense as a simpler being. Everything happens as if in this conflict between the orthodox doctrines and the doctrine of the Albigenses, two paths appear for discovering the individual's participation in the divine that are mutually exclusive, while at the same time somewhat equivalent. The Albigenses want to avoid subordinating the individual to the mediation of the community with its sacraments and its authority. Then, in individual isolation, there appears to be there appears another subjection internal to the individual, and another mediation consisting in necessity to pass through the operation of the body in order to act and heal. It is it's as if this internal mediation were merely another aspect of the mediation that appears externally as a communitarian mediation. Rejection of external mediation reinforces the individual being is not just in himself. The necessity of participation forces him to modify his initial limits, either toward the outside or toward the inside. And therefore, perhaps, and there, these are therefore perhaps two equivalent or merely complementary operations. Could be that each form of participation, recessive form, form of conversion, are addressed to different realities within the individual being, and that the option in favor of this or that form of participation only be elaborated after a simplification of the individual being. Yes, sorry, after a simplification of the individual being. 
To conserve the whole being, it would be necessary to discover a mode of compatibility between the two types of participation. Find a type of participation that inverts the Albigensian Amalric Benad, at least in a certain sense. Indeed, he attempts to discover the source of participation in a pantheistic unity. For him, each man is a member of Christ, the only reality that exists eternally identical to itself as God. Salvation consists only in the science or knowledge that God is in all things. This profound monism leads to the same practical attitude as that of the Cathars. Spirit must replace the church. Derived from the Stoics and John Scotus of Eugenia, uh, this line of thought elaborates a direct conversion without splitting the human being. But here, conversion is founded on a procession that exists before the human being. It is because of the simultaneity of procession and conversion. Splitting is no longer necessary in this ethics. The same search for unity between procession and conversion is encountered in David of Denant's work, De Thomas Seu Divisionibus. This writing was condemned in 1210 at the Synod of Paris, along with Eriogena's De Divisione Naturae. According to De Thomas Seu Divisionibus, the individuality of each being is founded on the existence of an indivisible principle, matter for bodies, intelligence or spirit for souls, God for separate substances. But this triad merely designates a single substance. For if distinct terms are discerned therein, one must acknowledge above them a simple and indivisible principle that contains in it what they share in common. This reasoning conforms with the thought contained in Evisibron's Pons Vitae. Through Evisibron, the inspiration of the Timaeus is present in David of Dinant. Um, yeah, I, this idea of the mediation of the community being replaced by the mediation of the body doesn't really make sense to me because mediation of the community is what allows access to the divine and the processive communities. For the Cathars, the body is what sort of interferes with the relationship with the divine, even because it seems like it's the the purification that he talks about in this section is the reduction of the the veritable individual, I guess, from the the drives and bodily passions. So even if the the individual while it's incarnated has to live through the body, uh this mediation is not a mediation that points towards salvation, it seems like. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what he refers to here. So it's at the bottom of five thirty four, top of five thirty five, when he says, um, um there's another mediation consisting in the necessity to pass through the operation of the body in order to act and to feel. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure exactly what this mediation consists in. I'm I'm not like um, very familiar with the the doctrine of the Cathars and and um, um, like what what this role of the body was for them. Um, but they they were a sort of Gnostic sect, um, so they they held that. Um, the human soul was imprisoned in the body and in the world uh, and had to be purified um, to sort of escape from the, this prison. Uh, so the body is, is definitely considered to be um, something negative that, um, that uh, 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 sort of holds the soul down in the world as opposed to allowing it to ascend toward God. Um, so yeah, I guess this mediation, um, um, yeah, I don't really know what exactly this mediation, this uh, internal mediation is doing. Um, but yeah, there was um, um, in the 
13th century, there was this massive um, crusade to uh, eliminate the Cathars, um, extremely brutal, like I think tens or hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's that's what the um, Albigensian crusade was. I, I think I have this totally unfounded theory that there's a continuity between like the Albigensian crusade and like the resistance against Vichy France in southern France. This kind of uh, these uh, this kind of resistance to northern France from from the south um, seems to recur in in like the religious wars as well. It, it was Protestant in southern France. Yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of um, I know that like um, there there are some uh, trying to think of an example, but there are some like um, studies that have shown le- uh, um, uh, like sort of um, historical remnants of like. Um, like, I don't know about this one in particular, but um, I think there was something about, like, uh, if you look at um, voting records today of um, individual counties in the U.S., like, you can you can trace back, like, um, the difference between the counties that um, were on the Confederate side versus uh, the ones that were on the Union side in the Civil War, uh, and, like, in particular states, and, and you can, like, uh, you can... Um, uh, sort of see the remnants of the civil war, you know, 150 or whatever years later. Um, um, and yeah, so like sometimes these historical events leave um, uh, remnants that survive for hundreds of years afterwards. Yeah. I believe that about the, the civil war counties. Um, but yeah, so it's like, I think it's this uh, Albigensian crusade um I think is is useful to keep in mind when we like looking at some of these um, uh, different philosophical positions in the medieval period. Um, it, they, they sometimes seem kind of academic, right? Like, you know, what is the relationship between the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ? You know, are they one nature or, or are they two natures and, and so on? Um, this might seem sort of academic to us, but for the people at the time, this was literally a life and death. Uh, question um, you know you could be burned at the stake for um, taking the wrong position on some of these uh, doctrines so um, yeah I think this uh, crusade is something that's worth keeping in mind uh, uh, when we're uh, talking about some of these philosophical debates in the medieval period that's a good point um, yeah and uh, I guess another question that, that I have reading this is um, the, the connection between um, the Albigensian or the Cathar um, version of Gnosticism in the, the 12th, 13th century um, uh, and like ancient Greek Gnosticism um, that we saw uh, earlier in reading within the Neoplatonist sections. Um, so there are um, a whole series, I mean, Gnosticism is, is a kind of um, catch-all term for any of these uh, schools of thought or religious traditions that involve some notion of um, uh, the world as a prison or the the body as a prison and uh, and the soul as um, being uh, sort of imprisoned in the world. Uh, and and this idea or, or this set of ideas sort of reappears in uh, a few different religious contexts. Um, but uh, I don't know if there's a, a historical continuity between like ancient Greek Gnosticism uh, that Plotinus was arguing against on the one hand, and then um, the Cathars in the uh, in the twelfth, thirteenth century. 
Um, I don't know if there's if it's sort of an independent rediscovery of of similar ideas or if there's an actual historical continuity or or what the connection is. So I knew nothing about Avalar before I read this section, um, and I I had no idea that he was as interesting <laughs> as as Simogum makes him uh, seem to be at least. But it seems like the point about this this uh, valorization of the individual to the point where you can't have either conversion or procession. Um, as you pointed out earlier, it seems like for conversion, there needs to be a kind of openness to the individual so that there can at least be this relationship of uh, microcosm to macrocosm, or this analogical relation. Um, and then also because the individual is valorized, the rules of the community or the relation to the community is... Um, is uh, degraded or seen as um, as having no authority or no trace of respect for the community's authority remains. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Is that your understanding of this? How the the I guess uh, the absolute nature of the individual in, in Abelard's thought makes both procession and conversion impossible. Yeah, I also don't know a lot about Abelard. Um, I only know of like the, the whole episode with Eloise and Abelard. Um, um, but um, yeah, I think um, any type of doctrine, like we saw earlier with Rosalinus, uh, any doctrine that um, holds that the individual is something uh, sort of self-contained and, and um, independent in this way uh, will make it very difficult to understand what the relationship between the community and the individual and the community could be. Um, and, you know, in a, in a Christian context, um, the relationship between the individual and God. Um, and uh, I think um, what Simon Don suggests uh, in, in the section on the Cathars here, um, he, he argues that um, the, these two forms of participation, the conversion, conversion and procession, um, require they each sort of capture one side of the individual, or they they emphasize one side of the individual and then sort of eliminate the other side, um, or or they they each um, grasp a certain aspect of the individual and leave the rest of it out. And um, I think this is a, a sort of characteristic move in in Simon Don's thought of like um, taking these two opposed positions and trying to find trying to grasp their unity, um, the, the point of unity that they both arise out of. And so he wants to um, arrive at an understanding of the individual that allows for both uh, procession and conversion to be understood as sort of um, components of, of, that, uh, of that conception of the individual. Uh, and, and so he uh, necessarily has to have an understanding of the individual that is not um, self-contained or or self-enclosed in the way that um, Rosalina's or Abelard's conception of the individual is. Okay, um, I think maybe it'd be this is a good place to stop for today, unless there are any other questions or or comments before we close. It makes Abelard sound like he's like skateboarding on the monastery steps or something. <laughs> No, no trace of respect for the Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I know that there's. Uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, controversy in the medieval period about the the rules of the monastic order, um, and like even even something like um, or the, the rules for the the church in general, like the uh, like 
we all know now that uh, priests are in the Catholic Church are not allowed to marry, but that was um, a relatively late introduction. I think it was like 11th or 12th century. Um, and it was primarily, it wasn't anything to do with like, you know, priests being pure or anything like that. It was because the, the, uh, they wanted to make sure that priests would not inherit their titles or, or that um, the children of priests would not inherit um, uh, positions in the church. And so the, the, the church um, hierarchy would, would still maintain the power to appoint um, the priests and bishops and so on, um, as opposed to having them be inherited titles. Uh, and, and so um, there was all kinds of conflict over like the rules of different monastic orders and, and you know, whether um, priests could marry and, and so on uh, all throughout the medieval period. Uh, and, and yeah, so Abadach takes like a, a, a radical line and argues that monks should be able to marry. And uh, um, yeah, he, he's definitely outside the mainstream of, uh, of the Catholic um, tradition on, on those rules of the monastic orders. That's interesting. Sort of a alliance versus filiation issue. Yeah, it's um, a lot of um, a lot of the the sort of traditions of the Catholic Church um, that are maintained today are are sort of medieval. Um, uh, were were introduced at, for like specific reasons in in medieval period, and then have just become sort of like part of the tradition of the church, um, as opposed to you know being something that was like. Um, sort of deliberately instituted or instituted for specifically religious reasons. It, it was often like a, a, a sort of organizational or a, um, uh, something like that, like an organizational question that ended up becoming part of the tradition of the church. Maybe people will be talking about the rules of DGQC reading groups someday in the, in the same way. Yeah, we'll have archaeologists or whatever hundreds, hundreds of years from now, like examining the, uh, the, chat logs from our discussions. Yeah, for some reason, they stopped using Alistair entirely <laughs> in 2022. Yeah. Um, so I think on that note, we can probably end here uh, for today. Um, so thanks everyone for coming out. And um, yeah, uh, I think uh, hopefully I should have time to um, prepare more for next time and we can have a, a full session next time. Sounds nice. good. Uh, thanks, man. Thanks, everyone. I'll try to make it next time again. Yeah, bye.